Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. Look, it's the best marketing you can get that's out there, right? You've got 10 times the amount of customers seeing your restaurant every single day. And the more they order off of your restaurant, off of a marketplace app, the more you can now communicate with them to order off your own app, right? And however you do that through your own website or whatever it is, allows them to start ordering through you and that natural transition goes through. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. Do you want to spend 60 minutes planning out a profitable 2022 with me? Just you and me. On Zoom, camera on, pen and paper out, getting you super clear on exactly what your goals are and how you're going to achieve them. It's free, even though the call is worth like a gazillion dollars. Go to planwithjosh.com to book that call with me. That's planwithjosh.com to book a one-hour strategy session to make sure that 2022 is your most profitable year yet. When the pandemic hit and delivery became king, it was an ugly process all the way around. The transition to takeout and delivery was wrought with issues on our end, and the delivery companies bit off way more than they could chew. But for the most part, we figured it out on our end. Our offering, packaging, and workflow are exactly where they need to be 18 months later. But can the same be set for delivery companies? Today we chat with Ben Jones, the founder of Skipcart, who's betting big that value in delivery will be defined by who's most reliable, not the cheapest. Together we'll analyze the current hurdles related to delivery and what Skipcart is doing to overcome them. You know, it's a bit of an interesting path that got Skipcart where it is today. I was not really in the tech space at all. I was a bit on the retail side, right? Like I was a supplier for some large retailers in Texas, like a large grocer and like walmart.com, right? Kind of selling stuff online and then stuff inside of stores. And I remember what got Skipcart started was Amazon acquired Whole Foods. And I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a store manager that's this Texas, Texas-based grocer. And his exact words were, we just got out of the EC meeting and what they came out of it was Amazon's the devil. We have to figure out how to beat them. And I go, what does that mean? You know, he goes, well, we got to figure out how to do delivery as a grocer. And this big company, the $25 billion company at the time, they're scared, right? They're trying to figure out like, how do we figure out how to do delivery and figure out how to beat Amazon? Because A, we've got this footprint that's bigger than Whole Foods. We have this ability to go out and have this huge customer base. But what we don't have is we don't have a digital experience. We don't have a delivery network. And at that time, it was the early Instacarts, you know, early Instacart, early ship 2017, right? Like just barely figuring out what online grocery was. And so myself, I had an entrepreneurial background, but I didn't have this take on the world's problems background at the time. But I decided this is something I really wanted to 
dig further into. And since I was already kind of tied a bit to retail, I discussed this with one of my friends who's in the tech space. And I said, hey, I want to go see what it's going to take to get in delivery. And so we kind of drew this thing out on the back of a napkin plan. And we said, hey, we can just, instead of being a marketplace, why don't we just provide like a Uber for grocery stores, right? And be a B2B for grocery stores. And so that's what we did. So the path to Skipcart was really out of a large retailer's needs to compete and looking for an entrepreneurial mindset to go dig them out of this thing. And so that's where the founding started. So describe for me, in your opinion, what the on-demand driver ecosystem looked like before you got into it. What worked and what didn't? We chose a white label approach, right? So it was really a driver network that catered to the needs of retail at the time. And for us, it was a bit non-existent. It was really marketplace was all the hype. White label delivery or self-delivery or first-party delivery where you'd go on to a retailer's website. This is even before restaurants had their own websites at that time. It was really, it was non-existent. Uber had put something out called Uber Rush. It was a bit early in the market. There was a lot of local companies that did some sort of delivery, but they were more couriers or just taxis, to say the least, is what they were, or taxis companies saying we can do grocery delivery. But at that time, it really didn't exist. So we were, I would say, one of the first of our kind that came about to just cater strictly to white label delivery. And what was the mission of Skipcart when you guys first started? Our mission at the time was really my early days. I remember looking at a Instacart order and seeing 15 to 20% markup on a grocery order plus the delivery fees, right? And at that time, I just realized like consumers, by not having a choice, are basically having to spend 15, 18, 20% more than what they could be spending directly at the store. But because it's the only option that's available out there, they're having to spend all this extra money when what we could do is basically charge a delivery fee to the merchant, right? Charge it to the grocery store or get passed on the customer, but they get charged in-store prices. And at that time, if you're going to the grocery store and spending $100 and now you're spending $115, $120 plus a delivery fee, your, your average consumer it just wasn't really viable. And so we decided to kind of do our part to see how we can save consumers money. How did you make the money work in those early days? Or was it just straight burn? It was interesting. We <laughs> The look on your face, kind of for those that are only it, listening, was absolutely priceless. Yeah. So it was a bit of a moonshot, right? So I remember early on, like we took this crazy approach. We didn't try local. We went to the fourth largest grocer in the United States and said, you're a $25 billion company. We can solve your problem because nobody else could, right? And so for us, the way we made money originally was just taking this approach that said, we have to go big, right? Like we have to go out and find the biggest customer that is out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. We burned a lot of money. I wouldn't say is making money exactly, but we were actually able to generate revenue by just going after this giant enterprise customer that said, we believe in what you're doing. Here's 150 stores right out of the gate, right? Which is just crazy for us because we had no idea what we were doing at the time. But that's how we made our first revenue. And then my very second customer, 
was a little company called Walmart, right? And so we took on this behemoth called Walmart. It was a bit tail wagging the dog kind of thing. We went out, flew out to Walmart, landed this big contract with this large retailer. And then I learned everything there is to know about delivery during that time. You know, we've got a team of five, a team of five versus a Fortune One company, which I think they still are, you know, so it was an interesting start to our company. Well, let's go back to the early days, to that actual entrepreneurial leap. But I find it hard to grasp. I mean, I think that for anyone to start their own business and think, oh, well, you know, this is something that the world needs and I'll be the one to bring it to the world in a way that they can engage with it is super inspiring. But like your competitors were like Uber and DoorDash and Instacart. Like, how do you go up against billion dollar corporations as not a tech guy, right? In the earliest days of your entrepreneurial journey, what gave you that confidence? I think you realize when you start talking to these companies, it's just a guy like me and you who's making these decisions, whether it's a billion dollar company or million dollar company or a local small business owner. They all have the same problems. What we learned is like we really dug into what their problems were. And when I realized that their problems were problems that I could solve as an individual or a small group of people from a product and technology side by building it out, I realized like we can actually do this because the DoorDashes of the world and the Ubers and the Postmates, right? Postmates was big at that time where they got acquired were their focus was their core product, which was food. It was grocery. It was aggregator. White label delivery wasn't a thing. And so they weren't really listening to the customers because the customers were who they were making money off of. And by going white label, they would not be able to support their core product. And so it was this bit of this thing that said, look, I'm in this unique position to help a large retailer who has these problems that these big companies don't want to support them. There's not technology out there that supports it. I'm a little crazy and want to go do this thing. And I believe I can go out and start this company to make it happen. And it all kind of meshed at this perfect time to say, like, build the product, go to the customer, and they will buy it. And they did, right? So it was a bit of a risk to do it because we didn't have the customers that actually committed at that time. But I realized like nobody was really focused on this at this time because they were making too much money elsewhere. So it was a good niche place for us to be in to be able to start. And I wasn't confident early in the days, right? Like I remember sitting back in the middle of starting the company. I saw this article come up that Instacart raised $400 million, right? And I was like, oh, well, you know, we've got <laughs> 200 grand, right? Or less than that this time from, from friends and family. I said, this is kind of crazy. But the thing is, our customers kind of believed in us at that time. And if I had this big corporations, $500 billion company believing in what we were doing, I realized we had something. And I kind of share that with my co-founders who, who also share this kind of this grit to be able to get to the next level. It got us to where we needed to go to build out the product and start supporting those customers as we are today. You've brought up a word several times, and I want to take an opportunity to unpack it because you talk about your customers. And whenever big delivery corporations talk about customers as a restaurateur, we wonder, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the end customer, the person that actually receives the food? Or are you talking about the restaurants or retail locations themselves? And the reason I ask is because there are many stakeholders in this one transaction that, that you are ultimately responsible for facilitating. 
And so what we've seen as restaurant tours is that it's really hard to figure out who is the stakeholder of highest priority. How do you reconcile it in your own mind? At the end of the day, the customer is the end consumer. That is who we're all getting business from. In some form or fashion, that's the one that has to be pleased, right? Our technical integration or our product integration may be into a large retailer or a large chain of restaurants. But at the end of the day, the service quality that is expected from that restaurant is what they're going to expect from us, right? Because they're selling that to their end consumer. Their end consumer is paying for that. So we have to offer that same service quality. So for us, just by association, it's the person paying the bill. The paying the bill for the product to get delivered. And that's really who we have to cater to. So our feedback from our customer, which may be, a, you know, some of our customers like AutoZone and 7-Eleven and Whataburger, those may be the customers that we bill and that's who pays us. But at the end of the day, it's their consumers that have that customer experience. And if they have a bad customer experience because they have a bad delivery or delivery went wrong or it was late, whatever it is, they're going to come back to us to solve it. And they're not going to use Skipcart anymore if they continue to have problems from us and our delivery network. So our job is to make sure that end consumer is happy and their feedback comes through our direct channels through our partnerships. Let's unpack that because there's definitely been an ideological shift. And you and I have had this conversation a couple of times before about how, especially like at the height of the pandemic, it was just about who can deliver the food the cheapest, right? That was how, as restaurateurs, as consumers, we value delivery facilitation. But today, it's different. The central focus seems to be on reliability. There seems to be a struggle for the big guys to be able to commit to a certain level of consistency or reliability when it comes to the successful completion of a delivery, but that's your whole bread and butter. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting evolution of delivery in general, right? Before we went from a delivery time of in the retail space, this is before we got into restaurants a couple of years ago, but we went to a delivery world where it was three hours lead time and we would get three hours lead time. We could find a driver and get it delivered. And when we jumped into the convenience and restaurant space, we started seeing 30, 45 minute deliveries. But then we see these 15, 20 minute quick commerce deliveries where delivery times have gotten shorter, right? You know, the consumer expects it fast, as fast as possible. And as that quicker delivery has happened, you've started seeing it be like, okay, well, now I'm getting fast delivery, but who can deliver it the best quality? And that's where this kind of evolution has went is it's went from a cheaper cost to a fastest delivery to cheap and fast, which is hard to do, but the consumer is demanding it. And so for us, it's really been a product push for us. I can go back to probably about March or April when the stimulus checks first started coming through. I could call up every CEO at every rideshare company, logistics company in the country, and they'd all say the same thing. Like we all struggled on quality of delivery during that time. And so what we did is we spent a lot of time saying, hey, don't oversubscribe as a delivery provider. Deliver what you can, deliver what you can on time, deliver what you can while the food's hot. Say no, I'd rather a customer just 
have a pickup option than get a delivery that is 30 minutes late where their family's sitting around a dinner table waiting for a delivery to get there and it doesn't get there on time. I would just rather order come in through a merchant and say, hey, we can't deliver it. The customer sees that they can't get it delivered. Hey, I can't get delivered today. I've got to do pickup. They're a little let down, but it's way better than completely letting them down with cold food. And so we spent a lot of time over the last year, year and a half, really refining our product to say, make sure deliveries are quality. Revenue is one thing, but you can only kind of stay in this game as a delivery company and be successful if you have customers, right? And the only way to have customers is to offer fast, low-cost delivery, right? And our product, I think, has really improved on that to offer that. And we went from a cancellation rate, you know, in the 6 to 7% range, kind of at its peak, down to 25 3% which is a vast improvement across all of our network and that's customer cancellations too, that says like that improvement has saved a lot of customers from having to get cold food or whatever it is. And so I think we're going to continue on that trend of making sure the customer is getting their orders on time when we say we're going to get them to them. What inspired the transition into restaurants? Why our market segment? It's not like we are easy to work with. No. <laughs> we're just so laid back yeah yeah totally it's been a very interesting journey in the restaurant space so the reason we did restaurants is a as a business market density just didn't make sense i mean you can still go to a shopping center and six out of ten stores still don't offer delivery so when we really had penetrated grocery as its whole right like we'd pretty much went full spectrum on grocery and started getting into retail. We really were a leader in the pack of that. And so we were able to cover most of those verticals. But for driver's sake, it goes to quality of orders. Like, how do you make this sustainable? On DoorDash, they can just turn on more restaurants or whatever it is. But for us as a white label company, in order for us to carry out our mission, we had to say, how do you keep drivers busy in the app? And so what do consumers buy the most of? food a couple times a day you're eating and so we got in early in the restaurant space with a big partner olo olo happens to be very large in this space and it was again enterprise approach where we take this whale of a client and go head first into it right and it worked well because we learned the landscape of the restaurants we learned the personality of restaurants and we learned that food works completely different than bag of dog food from Walmart. We learned that you really have to get this stuff on time and your customer is going to be really upset if it's not, right? So the restaurant space has been interesting because we've got to see this high volume increase for us as a company, but we've also learned how to improve our product by getting 30-minute delivery, by doing batching, by communicating with the customer better, Our first iteration of a product was like if you got something from UPS or post office, like you wouldn't get any alert. Now we over communicate because of the restaurant space, right? Because that customer will call you if that food is not on the doorstep within that time frame you said it is. So that's what's got us into it. And it's actually by far my favorite industry now just because there's so many personalities into it. And we have vast more restaurants than we do retailers across the U.S. Noted for the Noah Glass, you have a vested interest in restaurants moving off marketplace. 
you have unique insight, right? You have access to thousands of restaurants in their behavior, their best practices. What is the path of least resistance that you've seen firsthand or secondhand in making that transition off marketplace for restaurants? I sit in a unique position that you would think because of what my company is that I would say I'm anti-marketplace, but I'm also a business owner. And realistically, it just, it doesn't make sense. Like you just can't get off the marketplace from the get-go. So what I believe is a bit of a hybrid start, right? So A, starting with a best-in-class white label company. If you're big enough to fit into the Olo fold, do the Olo, right? There's plenty of companies, Lunchbox and Zuppler and Chow. Now there's lots of companies that offer great white label solution that are kind of best in class. And that's kind of a first take. So you find that, you find out who can get your app out there, who can get you on Google food ordering, put you on these places that can still bring incremental orders in, but you're still got a bulk of your orders coming into the marketplace. And that money you're saving by going to directly through these white label orders, you can start marketing more, whatever that may look like. Like You can spend more money on marketing and putting those marketing dollars that you save from the marketplace orders towards bringing more orders to first party delivery. I don't think restaurants in the near future are going to be completely able to get off of marketplace, especially if you're a smaller restaurant. I think if you're a large chain, it's a little different. But smaller restaurants, it's a bit of a thing where, look, you're going to have to live with both for a while until the technology or the app comes out there that allows you to do it. But I've never recommended to anybody going off the marketplace because, look, it's the best marketing you can get that's out there, right? You've got 10 times the amount of customers seeing your restaurant every single day. And the more they order off of your restaurant, off of a marketplace app, the more you can now communicate with them to order off your own app, right? And however you do that through your own website or whatever it is, allows them to start ordering through you and that natural transition goes through. What do you think on-demand delivery looks like moving forward? How do you see it evolving for restaurants and for the industry at large? Because we've already seen major swings in terms of consumer expectations and also the ability of on-demand companies like you guys to deliver in five minutes, right? Yeah. So where does it go from here? The on-demand delivery space or the restaurant space and on-demand delivery space. Look, I take this 15-minute delivery thing very seriously as an entrepreneur, as a CEO of a company. Look, consumers want it fast. It doesn't matter if you're ordering a burger and fries or you're ordering sneakers. And I really think that the virtual kitchen space is going to be a big one. I don't know enough about it just because it's moving so fast. I tend to not be able to keep up with that at this point, but it's moving so fast. I think virtual kitchen is a big part of it, right? And virtual kitchens is going to allow your brand, even if you're a restaurant that's on the south side of a city, you can now put it on the north side of a city through a virtual kitchen and your delivery is going to be available sooner. I think that us delivery companies are going to have to do better by putting more drivers to work. We're going to have to figure out how we solve market density for restaurants, retailers, grocers, and things like that to make sure we have more drivers available, right? You know, the average SLA for a driver today is about seven to eight minutes to get a driver to a pickup location. I believe it should be half of that. 
I think a driver should be driving by a location anytime during the day and going up and picking up an order as soon as it's ready and delivering it to the customer. So I really think this delivery market and this on-demand market is just going to evolve into everything, not just restaurant, but everything you want to order can be delivered within an hour. Amazon's trying to do it. I think there's a certain point where they're going to not going to be able to move any further into it just because of market size, warehouse space, real estate in downtown, et cetera. And so it's these local restaurants, these local retailers are going to have to solve it. And for us as a company, I don't think we're going to play a part in the software that drives it. But for us, we're going to make sure we have drivers available to make sure these expectations of customers can be fulfilled. And that's where we want to sit. What does life look like for the drivers today? And what do you think it looks like for them in the future? Because at the peak of the pandemic, restaurants weren't really making any money off delivery. Delivery companies weren't making money off deliveries. Delivery drivers weren't making any money. And at the same time, consumers were paying a premium rate for delivery. It was just a massive problem all around. How have you guys worked to fix that problem and make sure that's not a problem moving forward, especially with the need for more drivers. And I'm sure you see the same thing we do day to day in the restaurants, right? Like there's fluctuation in demand. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody's making money yet. It's, it, seems to be, <laughs> it seems to be a lot of money just going into an industry that's just well capitalized at this point, right? I think the driver is like the heartbeat of this whole thing for us, for all of us as a company, right? If if drivers decide to stop driving for all of us one day, like it's the end of the world for the consumer and for us companies, right? And so for us, I think we have to really figure out a way to continue to add value to the driver. A, giving them options within the app. So giving them benefits within the app, whether that's insurance benefits within the app or discounts like fuel discounts, partnering with big companies to do fuel discounts or partner with restaurants to do special things for drivers like coupons and things like that for drivers to make sure, hey, this is a preferred location we want to pick up. Also for us as a company, one thing we've been really looking at over the last six to nine months, I guess, is the self-delivery, right? So taking marketplace orders and capitalizing on kind of self-delivery, right? Where we can save restaurants money, And at the same time, saving restaurants money, utilizing the drivers better. So instead of picking up one order, we can go pick up one order for DoorDash, one order for Grubhub, and one order that's first-party delivery. It allows us to give the driver more money, make their trip more efficient, save the restaurant money, right? That's another thing we're trying to do. And then secondly is partnering with companies that are leading the space. So today we have partnerships with some of the largest retailers and restaurants out there. And our job as a company and as a driver network is finding retailers and getting them to start doing delivery, finding out where their need is, how our software can help them do delivery. You know, AutoZone is a partner of ours and you never think about battery delivery or spark plug delivery, but it's a thing now. And for us, the reason we do those things, instead of just being in a restaurant, in retail is how do you make this beneficial for a driver to not just be a food delivery? Because not every driver wants to do food delivery and food is only busy a couple times a day. How do we fill those gaps? How do we fill those gaps to make this a full-time gig for a driver 
to make sure they're making an income that's competitive compared to a full-time job. And that's the gaps we're trying to close. That's the gaps we've closed in a lot of markets. And that's the gaps we're going to try to continue to trend towards. I wonder when I look at consumer demand, they want it as cheap as possible, as fast as possible, and they're not willing to compromise. And then you look at the other stakeholders involved in the transaction, which would be you, the drivers, the restaurants. It's really hard to make it a win, 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 win for everybody unless you remove one of the stakeholders from the equation. And I'm curious to know what your position is on driverless cars, because it feels pie in the sky and like it's 20 years out, but it's going to be here very, very soon. I think driverless cars, like, I don't think it's a lack of technology, right? I think it's a lack of infrastructure that allows that to finally be fulfilled. I've talked to a lot of people in the space, met a lot of leaders in the space, and I think driverless, drone delivery, like, I fully anticipate that being a part of the ecosystem, a large part of the ecosystem. And really, I feel like that's where it needs to go. Even as a company that has tens of thousands of drivers, it's much better to have something where autonomy tells you when food's going to be picked up, when it's going to be delivered, et cetera, at a lower cost too. But If you go into any city in America today, and even with local leaders I've spoke to, I'm from San Antonio, trying to talk to them about how to put in self-delivery or drone delivery into this local ecosystem, it's just really hard to get through the politics of it, right? That's really what it is. And I think the infrastructure is not there because each city has its own unique way they look at it. And each state has their own unique way they look at it. And because it's not mandated by anybody or there's not some regulation that says this is what you must do, it's got to be a regional play, right? And that's why it's going to be so slow. I think neuro has made huge leaps and bounds. But if you had a conversation with them today, maybe you have, is that their issue is the local regulation, right? And that's what's going to be your local infrastructure. Our biggest problem is the last 10 feet. It's not the last mile. It's the last 10 feet. How do you get it to the door? How do you pull up to an apartment complex and make sure it gets to the consumer when there's 400 units inside that complex? And that's really an infrastructure problem that there's companies out there. But the issue is there's so much regulation that the company that has the technology for it can't move forward because the company Neuro is being regulated somewhere else. So I think it is an end-all be-all, and I think it's going to happen. But I think it's going to take more of a federal mandate as opposed to a state mandate or a state mandate instead of a local mandate, because that's where all the red tape that restricts it today. Are you guys even road mapping for that? I think at this point, we've talked to everybody that is in the space that's a bit of a leader. But until we know we can do it at scale, you know, we have big clients. So they're not looking for one store solution. They're looking for a thousand or two thousand. So it doesn't really do us any good to spend a lot of time on things that we don't have a lot of control over. So the answer is yes, it's roadmap. But until it's got enough less red tape, we're going to kind of put it on the side. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? I think for restaurants, 
I think it's really important to do a lot of research on the technology that's out there and understand that even as a small restaurant operator, you have the same capabilities that a lot of these enterprise and large chains, you have the same capability to do what they do, right? There's a lot of technology that can put you into a place where you can start competing with the marketplace orders. I think it's really important as SMBs to spend time researching that technology and find out what's there and find out what's best in class. And the same thing goes for retailers. I sit in a position where we're pretty closely tied to the retail space. And I think a lot of retailers don't know the technology exists out there. But look, we've seen 15 minute, 30 minute delivery happen all over the country. And it just takes a product owner or some business owner to understand what technology is out there to figure out how they compete, right? Because we see it every day. We see local mom and pops do exactly what some of the largest franchises in the country do. And it's sad to see some of these small mom and pops not know what's available to them to be able to actually go out and act on that same product mode roadmap that these big companies do. That's Ben Jones. For more on Skipcart, go to skipcart.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.